Now, let us open our Bibles, please, to the book of Acts. And I want you to turn with me to the second chapter of the book of Acts. And I thought that today I would make a study with you of the sufferings and the opposition which we find in the launching of the New Testament church and of our Christian, Christian movement. And it's not until you look at it closely that you realize what an important place the opposition had in spreading Christianity. And it's not until you look at it closely that you realize that the opposition had an effect upon the apostles and the evangelists in that it made them stronger and made them more courageous and made them bolder. So in the opposition which was manifest in the New Testament, in the development of the Christian church, is something which still continues. It has never stopped. And the opposition which the disciples ran into was directly related to the awful hatred which had vented itself against Christ in his crucifixion. The whole generation that had repudiated Christ and crucified him and were determined that they would silence what he was seeking to do immediately gathered its strength and vented its hatred against these disciples. And as soon as it became apparent that they hadn't successfully stamped out this movement, they hadn't been effective at eliminating what the Lord Jesus was talking about by his crucifixion, by just putting him away, the moment it became apparent that uh, uh, the desires of the ecclesiastical leaders of that day to stamp out this, uh, this awful uh, rebellion that they saw manifesting itself, then they organized themselves to destroy those who would uh, carry on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same forces, beloved, in the world today that are opposing the Christian movement are the forces that opposed it in the beginning, the forces of unbelief, the forces that are offended by the preaching of the cross, the forces that uh, look at this cross and they pronounce it foolishness. And so here you have the foolishness of the cross and the offense of the cross and the scandal of the cross and all of these things now that are gathered up to be uh, hurled against the Christians who believed in Jesus Christ. And so when you turn to the first and second chapters and you see the apostles and here in this first account of the preaching, Peter gives it to us in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. And if you'll read beginning with verse 41, And they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. 
and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now here they were, the apostles got up and Paul made this magnificent speech on the day of Pentecost, the first great sermon. 3,000 souls were converted. And he said, men and brethren, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And then they believed and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They knew what they believed. They had the knowledge that Christ Jesus was the Messiah. And they recognized that he had come to deal with their sin. And they held on to the apostles' doctrine. And in that doctrine they found this precious communion one with another. Because they had come into the life which Christ gave and into the possession of the promises that God had provided for his people. And then they had the breaking of bread which of course was the communion table and prayers. And so here they are, a believing people, a fellowshipping people, a testifying people, and a praying people. And beloved, that's about all you need. If you have the doctrine, which is the word, if you have the fellowship, which is our church, if you have the communion, which is our testimony to the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and if you have prayer relationship and contact with the Father in heaven, that's all you need. And that's what they had. And then you'll notice the next day Peter went into the temple in verse chapter 3 and he healed this impotent man and that caused a great disturbance. Peter says, I don't have any silver and don't have any gold, but in the name of Christ rise up and walk. And uh, then we have this magnificent speech which uh, the apostle Peter makes, his second great sermon. And uh, at the close of this second great sermon we find that the uh, ecclesiastical leaders of the day they're very much against him and so in chapter 4 we read and as they spake unto the people the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees uh, came upon them being grieved that they taught the people and they laid hands on them and put them in the prison or in hold until the next day it only took Peter two sermons to land in prison. Just two of them. He got the first one off all right. Got 3,000 souls saved. But when he got the second one on their way, and you had 5,000 souls saved, and when he got through with his second sermon, he was in the hold. They had him in prison. They came upon them. They were grieved at what he was preaching. They didn't like it. And they laid their hands on him. And then they took him and they put him over in prison. 
And this is the beginning now of this opposition which runs all the way through the New Testament, all the way through the remainder of the book of Acts, and on down through the history of the Christian church, down through the days of the Puritans, down through the days of William Penn, down through our days, and down to what's beginning to take place in our own country. Well, in this fourth chapter, if you'll look at it, notice please, they were called before the council. Uh, and the council won't know by what power, by what name have you done this? Then Peter, being filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we be examined this day for the good deed done to the impotent man, then he proceeds to tell them it's been done by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 12 he says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. And then we have that next beautiful verse. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. But beloved, you just put a man in prison once and let him out and the Lord takes care of him. He'll get bolder and bolder and bolder. And they've asked me, what's going to happen in North Ireland when Paisley gets out of jail on the 20th of October? Well, I'd like to be over there and see. Because and I assure you that Paisley is going to preach as he has never preached before in North Ireland. Once he gets out of that jail and the crowds come by the multiplied thousands to hear that man... He is going to exalt the word and justification by faith. He's going to cry out against this ecumenical movement as he's never cried out before. Once you get in jail because of what you believe, when you get out of jail, your tongue is freer than it was before. And when they saw the boldness, now look just a little further. Notice if you'll turn down to the 23rd verse. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the priests and elders had said unto them. And when they had heard that, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and who by the mouth of thy servant David. And then he quotes the scripture. And then we come on down with this prayer. And when you come on down with this prayer, verse 29, Now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may preach, what? Thy word. Behold their threatenings. Behold what they're going to do to us. Behold what they're trying to accomplish. Now, Lord, you see it, we see it. Grant that thy servant may have boldness and that he may have the boldness to speak thy word. Now look at verse 31. And when they had played, uh, prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Now verse 33. And with great power gave the apostles witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and... Great grace was upon them. Now here is the preaching of the word. Here's the imprisonment. 
Here are the threatenings. And then in the midst of this, the Holy Spirit comes down and gives these men a power and they are bolder and plainer and clearer in the preaching of the Word than they had been before. Will you turn with me over, please, to the fifth chapter of the book of Acts? And in verse 17, Then the high priest arose up, and all they that were with him, and were filled with indignation, and laid hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And then, of course, the prisoners couldn't, the the jail keepers couldn't find them, didn't know where they were. And then verse 25, Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple. And teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence. For they feared the people lest they should have them stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them saying, Did not we straightway command you that ye should not teach in the name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Somebody said to me the other day, Dr. McIntyre, what in the world ever led you to outline a program of 30 rallies and preach every night and go running across the state? Don't you know that's the, that you shouldn't have thought in terms like that? Beloved, the minute the House of Representatives in the state of Pennsylvania said that my views were dangerous to this country, The moment the House of Representatives in the state of Pennsylvania reflected on my ministry and they said that I began my ministry in the Presbyterian Church and the minute the House of Representatives began to say that I was ousted from the clergy of that denomination in 1936 and when the House of Representatives went on record saying that I started my own house of worship and they even said I started my own church federation, the American Council of Christian Churches, there was only one thing that Carl McIntyre could do if he was going to act in the spirit of this New Testament and that was to go out and fill the whole state of Pennsylvania with this doctrine. Just fill the state of Pennsylvania with it and ask the Spirit of God to bless and honor that word and I've seen more souls saved in these rallies in Pennsylvania than I've seen in my ministry through the years, night after night. And beloved, it isn't the enticing words of men's wisdom that saves anybody. It isn't a beautiful structure here with a nice fluffy rug on the floor. It isn't your nice mahogany pews that saves anybody. Only the Word of God can save sinners. Only the preaching of the cross can bring men to Jesus Christ. And sometimes as I've gone out across the country and I've been preaching on trucks and on hay wagons and have little cardboard boxes for my pulpit and the amplification's gone by, I've come back to myself time and time again. I said, how many of my people in Collingswood right now are ashamed of their preacher for going out like this? 
And how many of the members who occupy the pews of this church would do what your fathers did 30 years ago when we walked out and left the big church and went over here and sat on a on the ground out here with some cinders and some sawdust and we took communion out of paper cups. Oh, beloved, we must get back to the simplicity of the preaching of this blessed message and that's what these disciples had. They filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. And the state of Pennsylvania, the lower house, seems to think that our ideas are dangerous. Well, beloved, if we're going to act in the spirit of these apostles and if we're going to act in line with the way in which the Spirit of God works, it's our business to go out and fill the country with this dangerous doctrine that she must be born again. We must go out and present to men the claims of our blessed Savior in a day when his Bible is under assault. Last Sunday, Bishop Pike, you know, gave his last speech out there in San Francisco in his church. I didn't call it a sermon, I called it a speech. But the Associated, or rather United Press, reported across the country. And let me just read you. Here's the headline. Bishop voices doubts of all-powerful God. Bishop James A. Pike, in his final pastoral sermon at Grace Cathedral, declared that he could not affirm the existence of an all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing God. He disclosed the course of his own doubts through the years and thanked his congregation for being, quote, very patient with me. Noting that he was to appear the same day on a television program taped some months ago. He said he could not recall what this particular program was about. And quote, I don't know if I still believe what I am saying. Well, beloved, I've stood before you here 33 years and I haven't apologized for any of my views because they haven't changed. My views haven't changed at all. And furthermore, they're not going to change. And if they do, I want you to get rid of me. I want you to get me out of this pulpit. If my views change, I want you to tell the pastor of this church, Pastor, you were all right when you were younger men, but you've changed your ideas. And we're not going to let our children sit under the preaching of a man no longer how long he's been here if he doesn't believe this Bible to be the inspired and infallible Word of God. Well, last Sunday, Dr. Blake was preaching in New York. Pike was in San Francisco. Blake was in New York. And Blake was preaching on Christian unity, and here's what the New York Times said, quote, A world Protestant leader called on ecumenical and anti-ecumenical Christians yesterday to bury their theological hatchets and get on with uniting Christendom. And then the writer goes on to say, probably, well, let me read you a little further here. Blake says, Anti-ecumenical groups, he said, often win support by appealing to the worst prejudices of Christians everywhere. Some of them have publicly charged that the ecumenically minded churches are unbiblical, 
uninterested in individual evangelism, materialistic and even socialistic. Probably the most militant of the anti-ecumenical bodies is the theologically conservative American Council of Christian Churches headed by Dr. Carl McIntyre. The American Council has for years bitterly criticized what it describes as the liberal modernism of both the World Council and the National Council of Churches. Do you mean to say, beloved, that Dr. Blake has gotten to the place where he thinks that the anti-ecumenical company is so large that unless he can get them working with him in some way, they're not going to get on with the job of reuniting Christendom? And do you mean to say that Dr. Blake would have any idea that he'd like to have Dr. McIntyre in the same church with him? Can you imagine anything like that developing? But here it is, beloved, and why is it that the state of Pennsylvania passes Resolution 160 and gets into these areas and say that Dr. McIntyre's made vicious attacks on the National Council of Churches? The answer is that these forces are doing what they can to suppress, to discredit, to turn the minds of people away, and they can only go so far at the present time in our country. They're going a little further in North Ireland at the present time. But the great barrier today against their dreams of their world church stands this company of believers here in Pennsylvania and around the world who say that we cannot be in fellowship with bishops and clerics who can't affirm beliefs in an all-powerful God. And when you see this taking place, San Francisco last Sunday, New York last Sunday, and here we are in the state of Pennsylvania uh, seeing uh, gather together and coming together a, a company of people from all these different churches, all these different gatherings. They're coming together and you're going to see the real spirit of persecution manifest itself before we get through. But you know, I've told these people these last days as I've been out preaching about these things, that the Lord's going to overrule all of this. If it hadn't been for Resolution 160, which the state legislature passed, I wouldn't have had a summer tour of the state of Pennsylvania. I've seen that state from beginning to end, beloved. I know the state. I've slept in their motels. I've lived in their farmhouses. I've flown over their country. And I've got to where I kind of like the state of Pennsylvania. It's a beautiful state, beloved. And not only that, but it's filled with a lot of Pennsylvania Dutchmen and a lot of Mennonites and a lot of Calvinists and a lot of Independents. And it's just filled with all kinds of good people across that country. And they're heartbroken, they're disillusioned. The leaders that they trusted have gone off and left them and they're sheep without shepherds. That's what they are. And when I go across their state and we get into these various areas and we go out and we take this blessed book and then they tune on these radio stations that we have in the morning and they're listening and they're listening and they're listening and they're anxious that someone is raising the question about obedience to Christ and faithfulness to his word and the preservation of the kind of liberty that we now have. All right, will you turn with me now over to the seventh chapter of the book of Acts? And here, of course, we have the account of Stephen, one of the deacons. And uh, 
in the latter part of the sixth chapter, and they stirred up the people and elders and scribes and came upon him, they came upon him, caught him, brought him to the council, set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words. And then we have the entire sermon, chapter 7. What a magnificent sermon it is. In verse 51, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your hearts and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? And have they slain them? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of this just one, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and the murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet. And who was he? His name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen. And while they were throwing the stones at him, Stephen was calling upon God saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Chapter 8, what is it? And Saul was consenting to this stoning and at the time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem and throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Uh, verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Beloved, this is Christianity. This is a testifying to the cross of our Lord and what it does for you when it saves you from sin and saves you from death and saves you from hell. Oh, how simple the words are. Oh, how plain the doctrine is. And the Apostle Paul at this point was the unregenerate Saul. And here he was gathering them and hailing them to prison. Chapter 9, verse 1. And Saul was breathing out threatening and slaughters against the disciples he went to the high priest and desired more letters of them that he might go to Damascus. And then in chapter 9 you have the account of the appearance of Jesus Christ. Beloved, here was this man who was intent on murdering the Christians. He was hailing them into prisons. He was doing everything he could to stop this terrible line that this man Jesus had somehow or other died for sins. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ appeared to him. And this man Saul in the flash of an eye as he looked upon the face of our Savior and our Savior in all of his glory said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And this man who had been gathering up the Christians into prison now is going to spend most of the remainder of his life under the same afflictions and in prison himself. It just took one look upon the face of the living Christ to change this man, Paul. 
Just one glance, just to hear him say, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And the whole change was made in Saul's life. I've been very interested to see in these rallies that we've been holding. When I was up in the up in the cow pasture the other night at Lewisburg, they had quite a few of these students from Bucknell University came out. And I, I was interested in preaching to them. They were over here on the side and they had their chins all whiskered up and a few other things. And I was wondering what they were going to do because I've had no opposition, I've had no trouble. Nobody's ever caused any disturbance. And I, I, you wonder why sooner or later somebody might cause a little disturbance. They've, they've changed some signs on the road, but they've never come near. I'll tell you why they don't do it. The presence of the Word of God and my use of it, my handling of it, it just covers everything we're doing, is a fire about which they won't dare get over. It's just a head. Tremendous thing what this word has done. It's a covering. Tremendous covering. But I watched those fellows as I began to preach. And I preached the word and they listened. And I watched them and they looked to each other. Well, what's this guy going to do next? And you know, as I got going and got some of my facts and got my evidence out and began to present it out there, I preached to them the simple gospel but gave them solid facts. You could just see those fellows melt. Just see them melt. And when they got through, one of them came over to me and says, Dr. McIntyre, we came out here very critical of you, but you've given us something we hadn't heard, and we're going to think about it. I was way up in the northeast part of Pennsylvania the other night. We were out there in our chairs. Here came some fellows in. They were kind of roughies too, and they lay down on the ground over on this side. It's nice when you're out in your cow pasture. You can stand on your head if you want to. You can do whatever you want to out there. It's a great place. Well, they were over here, and so before the meeting began, I went over to one of them. I says, hello, boys. How are you? I said, you listen to my broadcast? No. I said, where do you live? Oh, we live downtown. We just heard you're going to be here. We want to see what you're like. I said, what church do you go to? Oh, I said, I'm a Catholic, I guess. That's what he said to me. I said, all right, son, stay around. We always said we're going to stay. And you know, beloved, before I got through, one of those boys held up his hand and accepted Christ as his Savior. I saw it. There is absolutely nothing that the Spirit of God can't tear down when he wants to. There's absolutely nothing that the power of this gospel can't pulverize when the Spirit of God gets a hold of it. Nothing. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And here's this man Saul. Look at his life. A persecutor, a persecutor. I persecuted the church of God, he said, after he'd been born into the kingdom. But one look at the face of the Lamb of God and an understanding that that Lamb shed his blood for your eternal redemption. It changed this man Saul and made him the great apostle to the Gentiles. And what did the Lord say to him, Saul? He says... I'll show thee how great things thou shalt suffer for my name's sake. And he did show him. Verse 20 of that ninth chapter, look at this. 
And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on his name in Jerusalem and uh, come hither for that intent? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt in Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. And verse 29, And when he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Turn over to chapter 11, verse 19. Now when... Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that rose after Stephen's <clears throat> about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch preaching the word. Then verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. And then we you turn down to the latter part of this chapter, verse 26. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. It was a name of reproach and opprobrium, the name of Puritan, the name of Lollard, the name of Protestant. Every name that's come to mean something to you and me and the glory of our history started out by men using them as jibes and words of abuse and, uh, and uh, uh, sarcasm against the Christians. I told you people that I was going to start publishing in serial form this short history of Puritanism. Oh, will you read it? The Martyrs, the Martyrs. There are two other books that I want to get and give away if I can, if I can possibly do it. One of them is Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I've been to Bedford, where he was in jail over there. He wrote the book. And on the little city square there, now they've got an immense statue to Bunyan. He's a great hero now. But, beloved, he wrote the book, which is the second bestseller. It's done more in the English-speaking world than any other book except the Bible. We are pilgrims, just pilgrims. We don't belong down here. And right now, with the whole emphasis in the ecclesiastical world on God being dead and God as he died got into the face of every human being and we have a general humanism now that we call Christianity and we're going out to change the structure of society and identify the church with the world. It's time that the Christian looked again at their pilgrim nature. And the journey that we have, we are here for one purpose. And that's to glorify our Maker and to win lost souls to Christ that they might believe and understand the revelation. That's what we're here for. And this next book I want to give away, I saw one on one of these bookstalls one someday, and I'm going to try to locate it, a little stand. Fox Book of Christian Martyrs. If you folks will read Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, and you little ones will read it. And then you'll read the book of Fox's Martyrs and what they did. 
And then you read the story of the story of Puritanism and see how it was this character, this strong conviction that God is sovereign and God will deliver and one man stands alone before his maker. Oh, it's that beloved that gave us this new world with its freedom. And it's ideas of that kind that now must again enter into the hearts and minds and live in the souls of men who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and who delight in his precious service. I've been telling these people in these cow pasture rallies, I want to get them so stirred up and so inspired and so challenged and so thrilled that if they can't get up to Harrisburg any other way, I want them to walk. Get over there. If the Puritans and if the pilgrims could ride in these ramshackledy boats that they used to get over here to this new world, if William Penn could go to London Towers and be a prisoner there and write his books, if that man could come and open up this country, and now when I think of William Penn and how he used to be along this little shore here, just think of his feet up and down the streets of Chestnut, William Penn. What that man stood for. What that man did in order to have freedom to serve Jesus Christ, he gave it to us. And are you going to sit around here like a crowd of weaklings and sissies and nobodies and not defend this freedom? And not be a witness for Christ in that boldness that comes when opposition begins to show its hand? Oh, what a people we are, beloved. We have some. Look at this book. Now, I didn't get into Paul after Paul gets through getting saved. Every town he goes to, they try to throw him in jail. That's right. And finally goes up to Jerusalem with his offering and they lay him, hold on the temple and they claim he disturbed a riot. And right there in that chapter, the 21st chapter of Acts, and the whole rest of the book, 25, 26, 27, 28, to the end of the book of Acts, poor Paul's a prisoner the rest of his life. A prisoner. And yet all this affliction and all this imprisonment and all that was heaped against these, God turned it over, gave his servants greater boldness. He used them where he had placed them. And this is the way Christianity has been handed down to you and me, our Christian faith. And we must hand it down. One man said to me this week, he said, Dr. McIntyre, he said, I guess if I was all that was involved, I wouldn't be so disturbed. But he says, I've got some grandchildren. And he says, I just can't imagine what it's going to be like by the time they get grown. That's the way he put it to me. I just can't imagine what it's going to be like by the time they get grown. He says, Dr. McIntyre, I'm going to be in Harrisburg. I'll be there. I says, I'll be there too. Folks, you be there. Every member of this church in Collingswood, what a privilege, what a joy is ours to be able to lift our voices in these last days on these great things that concern our pilgrimage. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank thee for the book of Acts. And oh, that Paul had one glimpse of the Savior and that turned him about. Oh, Father, may we be turned about and may we go forth with a holy boldness. And we thank thee for the simplicity of this gospel. That we must believe the word. 
And that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Yea, it's nigh thee. It's even in thine ears the word of faith we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen.